0: Hi, everyone. I'm here with Summer, and Summer is the CEO, President and Co-Founder of Hera Biotech. And Summer and her team are doing some incredible things. I'm very excited to speak with you today, Summer. And you're doing some incredible advances in tissue analysis, sample collection, diagnosis, when it comes to endometriosis, and that's about as much as I'm going to delve into medical terms and kind of what you're doing, I'm going to let you give everyone watching this, you know, more detail on that. I hope I said that somewhat properly. But, uh, you know, starting out, always like to get the background of the person that we're talking, you know, talking to, and, you know, tell us a little bit about your background, you know, how you started out, in this wonderful medical field? Uh, What brought you to the point of founding this company? Tell us a little bit about that journey.
1: Sure, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, So my undergrad is in entrepreneurship from the University of Texas. Um, my, My master's is in data analytics. Um, from LSU. But I fell in love with um, the medical world and specifically women's health. In my last year of my undergrad, um, I had kind of an arduous labor and delivery with my first daughter. And I invented a medical device around the problems that I encountered um, during that labor and delivery. And that was kind of my first foray into it. I was lucky enough to Um, enter a student venture competition and win it with our medical device and the business plan we built around it and I was picked up by a venture capital fund here in San Antonio, Texas, following that. And I spent seven years working with them, conducting due diligence on technologies coming in, um, looking for funding, uh, acclimating CEOs to what's required once you take on external funding. And then I served in two of their uh, fund companies. They were sister companies in the drug development world. Um, We exited both of those companies. The fund was fully vested. So I took a little break and decided I really wanted to get back into women's health. And that's what led me to um, find the technology that we've licensed from UT Health um, and and found Hera Biotech.
0: Wonderful. And so you have an understanding from both Sides of the fence, as far as from the venture capital side, the investor side, and also from the entrepreneur startup side. So you kind of had that bug that you just wanted to get out there and, and start that. But what what was the actual pain point when you saw this technology and you know wanted to license it and start your own company to market and bring this pro this uh, you know technology to the market? What was what was that one? What was that made you latch on this as far as the women's health? Was there something personal or something maybe that you knew somebody that had this challenge with their life that made, oh, this is something I really want to latch on to?
1: Sure. So initially, I started looking at all of the main institutions that one would think to go to uh, when looking for technology. And what I found was that Most of the innovation in women's health was happening in the therapeutic space. Um, Yet when you really started to dig into the chemistry and the background of the technology, what it was was a symptom control mechanism. It really wasn't treating the disease, which kind of triggered that light bulb of, oh, we don't really understand these diseases, which is why we can't really treat them. So I then decided I wanted to go find a diagnostic. I had a colleague call me, say, I heard a rumor. You were looking for a technology. Um, I have it. And I said, Well, I really want a diagnostic. And he said, Okay, I've got it. So I came in and looked at it. And as it turns out, um, my cousin has endometriosis. Um, I really feel strongly that I have undiagnosed endometriosis. Um, I've, I've had all the classic symptoms and a lot of the, the difficulties that women with endometriosis have. Um, and so when I saw it, and I started to dig into the market and understand that women in the US go eight years and 10 plus doctor visits before they get a diagnosis, I thought, well, if that's not a huge problem, I don't know what is. So I decided to, to take it forward. I thought it was a, a really great technology and a really big problem.
0: Fantastic. I, that's, that's good. To, it's, I'm glad you shared that because it's always nice to know then what drives somebody to say, this is it. And uh, so give us a quick what I'm going to call an elevator pitch, kind of going through all the key points of what you're doing, you know, problem solution market, uh, you know, all the way up through, you know, the money aspect uh, just a quick, you know, within two minutes, let's say a uh, quick elevator pitch. And then we're going to dive into more of the details in regards to that.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So for example, worldwide, there's about 200 million women who are believed to have endometriosis Currently, the only method for definitive diagnosis is a surgical procedure performed under general anesthesia. Patients are often referred out to a surgeon who attempts to locate the lesions and then biopsy them to ensure that they're the same tissue that should be growing inside the uterus, which is what endometriosis is. It's tissue that should be lining the uterus grows outside of the uterus in the form of lesions. So it's quite literally a where's Waldo approach to diagnosis. You have to go find the problem sample it and make sure that you sampled something that is actually the problem. So this procedure fails to confirm diagnosis about 50% of the time. Now our team believes that's the main driver behind the eight years and 10 plus doctor visits that most women endure prior to receiving that diagnosis. So with Harris technology, what we've discovered is a gene set in that tissue that lines the uterus that when misregulated, predisposes that tissue to the invasive behavior that you see, which causes the lesions. So with us on the market, a woman would be able to come in for an office visit where her doctor could collect a tissue sample from inside the uterus. It's very similar to placing an IUD. And it also provides the doctor the opportunity to receive reimbursement on the collection and the office visit. That sample is then shipped to our lab. We run our analysis to look at the expression levels of our our patent-protected biomarkers. We share diagnosis and stage with the physician, and together, physician and patient can begin clinically-informed, stage-appropriate management of this endo. Now, that's about a $9 billion market worldwide. The largest portion of that is in ob practices and the remainder fertility solutions. Something that's really unique about Hera is because we're a laboratory-developed test, we have an opportunity to get reimbursement and commercialize prior to FDA approval. We do intend to seek that FDA approval. We will use the clinical trials needed for our laboratory developed tests to inform that strategy, but that allows us to get into revenue much earlier than a traditional diagnostic or medical device company. Um, for example, in year five, we anticipate running about 32,000 tests. That's only half the number of new prescriptions written for the leading endometriosis drug, and it gets us to about 45 million in revenue.
0: That's, that's fantastic. And you did such a great job of, that, you know, doing that elevator pitch. Uh, thank you for that. And that's extremely helpful. So now we're going to dive into that a little more. And you, before we started the actual interview, you know, you, you stated a statistic, you know, that I found kind of shocking as far as, uh, you know, some of the non-physical effects of endometriosis and how it can impact women and men because you share that statistic you shared with me.
1: Sure. So you know one of the things that um I think is really important about women's health is that we make it relatable to everybody because women's health is everybody's health. Everybody has a mother or you know a friend or a Absolutely. Mom, uh, or a sister. sorry. um so one of some of the shocking statistics around endometriosis, um one that I found personally really just, disturbing is that, you know, everybody's relatively familiar with the statistics around divorce in marriages. Um, But women and couples where one partner has endometriosis have a 30% or 33% higher chance of divorce than their non endometriosis counterparts. And this is in part because endometriosis causes this chronic pain and it's very difficult and strenuous further about 50% of women who have endometriosis suffer with infertility. We all know the statistics around the the stress that infertility can put on a couple. So these are just some of the ways that it has an effect on the men in these women's lives
0: as well. Sure. And, you know, and definitely a problem. I, I don't think there's any question that there's a problem. And, you know, the investors and people that are watching this, they will have they have the, they'll have the deck right there as well on your profile on the platform but you know within the deck i believe it's slide 3 if i remember correctly you know there's an image of what it is like to get those tissue samples in today's current technology and field and it's kind of disturbing just for me even to look at it uh, so if you're offering you know the much less invasive means of getting that. So talk a little bit just more about that solution and how that works. And
1: sure, absolutely. So um, like we said, you know, the current technology is a laparoscopic procedure. So you have about five or six ports that go into the abdomen, and it expands the abdomen with gas. And, and quite literally, the surgeon's task is to go find tissue growing somewhere in the abdominal cavity, specifically the peritoneal cavity for anybody who has medical experience, um, that looks like it doesn't belong there, which is just a huge territory to try to have to do that. Um, And also endometriosis is very heterogeneous in presentation, the lesions can be blue, black, chocolate brown, powder burn, white, red. And so it's just an extremely difficult task. So I always try to make sure, you know, we're not faulting um, surgeons for the high failure rate of this procedure. Industry has ill equipped them with sufficient means to go do this in an inefficient manner. So um, essentially what they're going to look for is these lesions that have formed that are actually made up of the same tissue that lines the uterus. And so what we've discovered is within the lining of the uterus, when you separate the two main cell types, there is a huge variation in this gene set that predisposes this tissue to the invasive behavior required to then go grow these lesions out in the cavity. And the gene set that we've discovered has been, it's a well-known gene set. It's, it's based on connexins and gap junctions. And this gene set has been well-documented in its role in mediating invasive cell behavior. But what's very interesting is that those two main cell types that I talked about, the stromal and the epithelial, have almost perfectly negatively correlated expression patterns. So when you look at it on bulk, which is where most people would start, it appears as though nothing is happening because they cancel each other out. It isn't until you separate them and look at them on a single cell basis, which is what we do, that you see that marked variation in their expression levels.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And then that's all done by just uh, going in, Yeah, so it's
1: just a uterine biopsy. It's called an endometrial biopsy. It's something that OBGYNs are all trained to do. It's a procedure that's currently done in OBGYN offices. Um, Typically, when a woman gets an endometrial biopsy, what they're looking for is endometrial cancer. Um, But it is something that every OBGYN knows how to do. Um, And so that's essentially we use the tissue sample that they collect from there to run our analysis
0: wonderful thank you for sharing that and uh you know it does make it sound much more appealing than that graphic that i'm for picture image i'm referring to on page three of your deck uh, so and everyone will be going oh wow this is fantastic uh especially the women i'm sure so uh let's talk you know just you know you you already spoke about the market and uh, the size of the market, but let's let's talk about the market and then the go-to-market strategy. As you said, you can get into revenue sooner than most uh, med device companies can uh, mm-hmm. because of what you're doing. But I see, I know that I believe on your projections, you have uh, next year, 2022, actually bringing being in revenue. And uh, so, talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So How are the, our str- the
0: timeline and the milestones that are going to lead into next year and into revenue.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Um, okay. So there are mechanisms um, that the FDA has put in place where the FDA recognizes that a laboratory could come up with a test or an assay that would be very valuable to a physician or a patient population. And quite frankly, the FDA cannot possibly regulate every single one of those tests across all laboratories in the U.S. So they have kind of this loophole, if you will, that says a laboratory can develop an assay utilized in a diagnostic or, you know, a measurement of some sort of marker that the physician's interested in. Um, The caveat is you can only work out of a single central laboratory. So you can sell the test or collect tissue samples from anywhere, but you can only operate the test out of a single central laboratory. Okay. So it's a kind of a loophole. And I don't know if your, your group is familiar with, there's a company out of Austin called Everly Well that's created a lot of buzz because they've completely exploited this loophole and really disrupted laboratory testing and how it's done, been done traditionally. So we intend to do that same thing. So we will commercialize first as a laboratory developed test. That will require two relatively small clinical trials we're going to do a 60 patient, what we're calling a proof of concept trial, um, just to expand our patient population and get some statistical significance around sensitivity and specificity. Then we'll roll right into 120 patient, what we're calling a validation study, just an even larger group to maintain those sensitivity and specificity percentages. Once we've done that, we can file for a reimbursement code and start selling our tests out of a single central laboratory. And we're already in discussions with um, the largest independently owned women's health lab uh, to work as our laboratory in a strategic partnership for that purpose. During that time, we can market to ob reproductive endocrinologists. The lab that we're talking to currently services about 600 ob Um, We also intend to have a small group of dedicated sales professionals, we're talking two or three max, we'll place those folks into some high value territories um, to, to generate these revenues that we are talking about. And then we'll roll into about a 250 patient trial that will support a de novo filing with the FDA. So that's the strategy there um, so that we are able to get into revenue and be generating revenue while we wait for the FDA to render their decision. We don't want to get in what I call the regulatory death spiral of waiting for the sure. FDA to do something before we can get
0: revenue. Which also makes it attractive to an investor because most, most investors that, you know, as you know, that look into this space know that it's going to be a little bit longer haul because of having to go through those FDA processes and red tape and all of that. But it sounds like you have a little, little like you said, the loophole that's going to be able to fast track you per se through not having to deal with that as much. So that should make it fairly attractive and you know, to the investors that are looking at it. So uh, let's talk about the raise. And uh, mm-hmm. on your deck, you have a very detailed uh, breakdown of where the funds are going. But talk about the, you know, the, the raise that you're doing. I believe uh, you're doing a, you're in a million dollar round right now. And correct me if I'm wrong, you've raised about 750000 of that. And so we are about correct. three quarters of the way done. Well, let us know what the, you know, what that looks like and how that's going to be broken down as far as usage of the funds.
1: Sure, absolutely. So we're doing a million dollar raise. Um, like you said, we have it about three quarters of the way committed. We've um, been very, very, um, I think, fortunate to be able to work with some really great angel investors. Um, Something that's really been important to me as a recovering venture capitalist um, is that when we take this early stage money that we're taking what I call smart money, we want investors who can add strategic value, Uh, to the company. We want investors who care about what we're doing, not someone that just writes a check and then says, talk to you when I, you know, get my exit. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been really important. And I think that we have gotten that in the group that we have so far. And and we continue to look for that as we close this round out. Um, So anyways, we're about three quarters of the way done. We're doing that raise via a convertible note. Um, it's a pretty traditional note, two-year maturity. It pays 6% interest. We're offering a 25% discount into our series A with that note. Um, And then we also have a $15 million cap on that for our next round. Um, The use of funds primarily will be to fund the proof of concept study. Clinical studies are not cheap, um, but we have found some vendors who have been really excited about what we're doing and willing to work with us and have been very helpful in that sense. So We're able to run that clinical trial, but that's going to take about three quarters of that round. Um, The remainder of that will be spent on conducting a pre-submission meeting with the FDA. We're working with a former FDA regulator who regulated medical devices and in vitro diagnostics, which is what we are. Um, We intend to seek their buy-in that they'll consider breakthrough designation. If we get that buy-in, we will absolutely file for breakthrough designation, um, which will significantly bolster our value going into our next round Um, and also offers quite a few benefits to the company and then we have an ongoing national phase patent filing around the technology the foundational patent which we licensed from ut and then we have some additional pieces of ip that we'd like to file as well that open up new indication probabilities for us
0: fantastic that that's great Uh you really, you know, your background in venture capital definitely <laughs> am, has you well versed in this area, which which is, you know, very appealing, I'm sure, to a lot of the investors that will be watching, watching this. So one thing I did, you know, we didn't talk about is competition and, uh, you know, I addressed, you know, what's out there, if there is any competition in this realm.
1: Absolutely. So there is another company in the US that um, most people would consider a competitor, I actually consider them a compliment, but I, I would, I would acknowledge them in this moment. Uh, the company's name is dot lab, they are developing a blood based test to screen for endo, um, which is fantastic, obviously, in terms of method of collection, the problems that I see with um, let's just say the marketability of the test would be that endometriosis is not a well understood disease. And when you look at markers in the blood, they must be tied back to information that you have about the disease about causative tissue. So if you think about it in terms of oncology or cancer, right, we diagnose a ton of different cancers, we diagnose very few of them, from a blood sample. Blood samples are most often used to give doctors direction for further investigation. But once they kind of have that direction, they need something definitive. And that's where you go get the tissue sample. And that's where Harris test really comes in. So I think it would be great if dot lab commercializes their test, I think it will fall somewhere in the market where all blood tests fall, which is a screening mechanism. um, Because an endometrial biopsy is not trivial I mean it's it's uncomfortable right I've had one they're not fun <laughs> I wouldn't sign up to do it on a Sunday um, but I think it would be a great compliment to what we're doing in helping filter appropriate patients to our tests who need that definitive answer
0: sure okay great good good to know and thank you for sharing that uh, so the one thing we haven't touched upon is your team so let's talk a little bit more about you know the key key components of your team that are making this happen.
1: Sure. Oh, this is my favorite part. Okay, so our in- our team includes the co-inventors of the technology who just have incredibly um, amazing resumes. They have unparalleled scientific and research expertise. So The one side of our team, Dr. Nicholson, comes from the structural biology world. Um, And he was actually the first person to discover that gap junctions are the primary means of communication between cells. He discovered the first connexin, sequenced the second one. You can see why our gene panel is connexin-based. And so he has spent over 40 years researching the implications of misregulation in this gene set. And so he is just uniquely um, qualified to help us as we move through um, this diagnostic development. Dr. Kirma, on the other side uh, has come from female reproductive oncology and endometriosis was always a passion project of his because it acts so much like cancer um, with the main differentiation being that there's not unregulated growth in these regions or in these lesions. So, Dr. Kirma and Dr. Nicholson came together at an oncology conference. And when Dr. Kirma heard about the role that connexins play in, in invasive behavior, he just, it was that light bulb moment. and that's where the uh, technology was born. We also have an incredible board of directors. So we have three members of our board right now. Uh, We have Dr. Paul Costella, who has over 20 years in startups and life science venture capital. He has started, managed, and exited over five life science ventures, um, the first of which was a uh, women's health diagnostic for trichomonas. He exited that to Genzyme. Um, Then we have uh, Wendy Smith who is a nationally recognized expert in value-based operations and implementation in terms of reimbursement. She's our go-to guru on uh, reimbursement. And then we have uh, Neil Walsdorf Jr. He's the president and CEO of Mission Pharmacal, which is one of the larger uh, privately held pharmaceutical companies. They have a robust uh, women's health portfolio and sales force. Uh, a huge manufacturing facility, and he's been really, really key in getting us connected to appropriate regulatory um, consultants and commercialization and sales um, expertise. So we're just very, very grateful. And then we have a physician advisor, um, Dr. Carolyn Kay, who is an ob uh, Currently, she works for Roche Diagnostics in their cervical cancer screening uh, division. She's just been incredible because Physicians are the ones who will be utilizing our technology, and we want to include their perspective and how they envision utilizing it from day one so that it's not a corrective measure. It's an inclusive measure.
0: Fantastic. Yes, you have a dynamite team there put together, and you mentioned uh, one in specific about exits. That's one thing we didn't address. What do you foresee as the exit and timeline, potential timeline for an exit?
1: So in reality, I don't think an exit will come before year five. Um, But it's worth noting, we've already been approached by a large pharma company. Uh, We've also had a representative from the New York Stock Exchange um, trying to solicit our listing on their exchange. So I would love to be wrong. Um, I could be wrong. But in in reality, I would rather um, under promise and over deliver. So I think it'll be happening after year five. I ideally, I'd like to go public, I think it gives Hera the biggest opportunity to provide value back to its investors. Um, It also allows us to expand and really put our arms around the entirety of women's health um, and tissue based diagnostics. But ultimately, we will do what is right for the investors and the company. Um, I think that most likely, I used to say Roche all the time because they're just such a huge player in the diagnostic space, but Hologic has been making some big moves in this space and they've been gobbling up early so I think that'll probably be our most likely suitor. Um, secondarily, I would think a big pharma company um, because of our ability to be a companion diagnostics and really enable therapeutic development because we can track disease progression.
0: Sure. Okay. Very good. You already answered what you're looking for in an investor, which I was going to ask earlier. So that's that's great. Uh, have you encountered any stumbling blocks along the way as far as fundraising goes? Oh,
1: yes. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean you know, uh, as a female founder in women's health, I just think I put together the perfect trifecta for what you're not supposed to do. Um, but it was really important to me. So I decided to to step out there and swing my bat, so to speak. You know, the biggest obstacle that we've had, um, and it, it may sound like a humble brag, it's not intended to, to feel that way, is we've had a ton of um, larger investors. So um, like family offices that own another sort of complementary technology or, or company who have wanted to come in and and it's always the start of, oh, we'd like to invest and this is what we're thinking and so on and so forth. And then you get down to brass tacks and it's like, ah, but, you know, we're going to tie that to an exclusive license or a right of first refusal or... We're just going to give ourselves a really good deal and, and, you know, kill your valuation um, or, you know, how you would raise money in the future. And so really being um, my background in venture capital has served me well in those moments because I've said, oh, that's delightful, except that I would never be able to raise money after today. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, So those have been the biggest stumbling blocks.
0: And and what a value you have as far as having that knowledge and understanding. So you yourself can, you know, know and see through all of that. And, you know, this, this has been wonderful. One thing now to close out, how do people get, what's the best way to get in touch with you? And we'll share this also on the video. People will have it, but, you know, tell us what's the best way to get in touch with you.
1: I am available via email or phone or text. Um, I don't have social media. I'm not that girl. <laughs> LinkedIn is my social media. So you can find me yeah, on LinkedIn fine. if you'd like. Um, summer Babarik. Um, And then um, my email is summer at harabiotech.com. And then my telephone number is 210-683-1069. And if I don't recognize the number, I won't answer, but I will, uh, if you leave a voice message.
0: Sure. And let me point out, and this again, will be on the video, but summer is S O M E R at yeah. Hera biotech. Yes. So, uh, Summer, it's been a pleasure. I enjoyed visiting with you prior to the interview, and also enjoyed this as well. I think uh, we've gotten a very clear idea of what you're doing. It's very exciting. Uh, I think there needs to be more focus on women's health, and in a more of an understanding too, in regards to how women's health can really affect the the family unit and the whole environment around them. So. Uh, I'm glad that you touched upon that because I, you know, sometimes we don't even think about that. We look, overlook those things. So what you're doing is going to have a tremendous impact, you know, not on the only the physical health of women, but also the other aspects of their well-being. So thank you for what you're doing, Summer. I look forward to following you and seeing how things go. And I wish you the best of luck.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And I don't think you need any luck. I think you'll do one well without <laughs> luck, but
1: I thank appreciate you for that. your time. Thank you.